The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Hope you had a good weekend. Here we kick off the new week on this Veterans Day, and our thank you and salute to all of those who have served and are serving now to protect our country and make that commitment to our country. We thank you so very, very much, and we honor you and salute you, something we need to do year-round, but especially we do so today on this Veterans Day. A lot of Veterans Day observances around the country, and uh, again, our salute and our thank you to all of you. All right, coming up on our program today, we'll talk about this winter weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We'll look back at Friday's report with Steve Nicholson with Bravo AgriFinance. Interesting day, um, a kind of a blackout, and things got on put on hold, information not coming out when everyone was expecting it on Friday. We'll talk about all that. And we're going to talk with Robert White with the Renewable Fuels Association. Uh, We look back on just uh, how much progress was made this year when it comes to E15. Not only sales, but uh, getting more infrastructure in place. We'll talk about that with Robert White a little bit later on. But let's kick things off with Spencer Chase in our nation's capital. Spencer, I'm looking forward to seeing you and many of our farm broadcasting friends this week in Kansas City for the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention. I'll be uh, broadcasting from there Thursday and Friday of this week. Secretary Purdue scheduled to joining us to join us, and I guess we'll hear among other things about uh, another round of market facilitation program payments coming out uh, not too far off. It sounds like maybe later this month, early next month. Yeah, that was the commentary he had for us uh, toward the end of last week. Uh, he was uh, doing the call to discuss a trade mission that he and a number of other uh, American ag officials had taken in Mexico. Uh, but that came up, and uh, that was something we were wondering when we were going to see the announcement on that. We knew that when they initially rolled out uh, the 2019 version of MFP, they had said they wanted to do uh, three tranches of payments, one that was going out right away, another that was going to be deliberate, deliberated and decided upon in November, and then now we wait for another potential announcement in January. But uh, we do know that the uh, Secretary said uh, these checks are looking to be uh, put in the mail. They've received authorization to do it, uh, looking to get that funding out to producers here by the end of the month, potentially seeping out into uh, into early December. Okay, so other than with the association with these payments, how often do we ever use the word tranche? I, I, you know, I've discussed that with other people. I, I don't know that that word is, was ever even in my vocabulary until no. until the market facilitation program came to be. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know that I'd ever used it either. And I was, I kept yeah. when I first saw it being used, I thought, why aren't they just saying the next round of payments? Why tranche? But uh, oh well. Well, Makes it sound way more official, Mike. I, I guess so. Meanwhile, Congress <laughs> has a lot to get done in a short period of time now. Right. Now, keep in mind uh, the kind of the thing that's looming over everything right now is that uh, government funding is set to expire on November 21st. 
So here, that's not too long at all. That's uh, that's toward the end of next week. And so they need to agree on some kind of a continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown because it's not looking like they're going to be able to strike some kind of a year-round spending bill that will enable them to kind of uh, be, be done with the government funding question until the next fiscal year. It's looking like they're going to need a little bit more time. And so they're probably going to be considering some kind of a continuing resolution here in the next week or two. Uh, but also keep in mind, uh, the House is going to start, It's you know, they've been doing behind-the-scenes depositions on the impeachment process for the last couple of weeks. They're going to hold their first public impeachment hearing on Wednesday. And not saying that we need to dive into that on an agricultural news program, but just keep in mind, that's going to take up a lot of time, a lot of legislative oxygen on Capitol Hill. And at some point, they need to also consider the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. A lot of folks hoping that can get passed by the end of the year, but... We still don't have the implementing legislation from the administration on that. And so a lot of things still need to happen here uh, in the next two weeks in particular. But even once we get past that, the month of December could be a busy one as well. You know, on USMCA, it depends on who, you, who you're who you listening to. I mean, uh, some tell you that things about to happen. It's right on schedule, going to happen this year. And then you hear others who start slow playing it, downplaying it, and it makes you wonder. Right. Well, I think the, the one thing that we always need to remember is we have not heard anyone from the administration or from Capitol Hill come out and just say, you know what, no, this deal is done. It's not going to happen. Everyone involved is still talking you know, relatively positively about the prospects on this deal. And so that, that spells good things for Farm Crunchy that really wants to see this agreement pass. And I, I think that's what people need to keep in mind right now. Yeah, there's hope, but I tell you, it until you see something start to happen. I mean, you, you mentioned the administration hasn't really sent that final paperwork, which tells you they don't think the, uh, they're ready to pass it in the House, it seems to me. If they thought the votes were there or it was going to move, they'd go ahead and send it, wouldn't they? Well, and I know something to keep in mind here. A lot of folks are, you know, and, you know per, perhaps rightfully so. Maybe they think the politics uh, lead themselves uh, in this direction. But a lot of folks are, you know, making some noise that Nancy Pelosi needs to do a better job of, of, you know, whipping this vote. But Pelosi has long had a reputation on Capitol Hill of being the best vote counter in Washington. And she has also long said that she would like to get to yes on this bill. Moving on this agreement yet is probably a good indication of Pelosi saying that, listen, we just don't have the votes yet. And, the, you know, the administration really doesn't want to force the issue, uh, misplay their hand, and all of a sudden end up with... Uh, without one of uh, the president's chief uh, legislative goals in hand, too. No shock to anybody. There's a lot of politics at play here, and that will be a big right. part of this. Um, I want to go back to Friday's crop report. <laughs> to add intrigue to the whole situation, there's this blackout and this uh, dark hole of no information coming out from USDA. Right, yeah. We, we were in the same position everybody else was that day, just kind of constantly hitting refresh on the NAS website. Uh, and the ERS website, wondering when you're going to see that information. I, I, I think it uh, ended up being about a 13-minute delay and uh, still some, some investigation to be done in terms of what ultimately caused that delay, but we do know USDA came out and said something to the effect that it was a server maintenance issue in Kansas City where some of this information is housed. And so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I, 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 you know, to, to be a fly in the wall in the, in the room where, a lot of those decisions were being made. I imagine there were a lot of people very frustrated and very nervous about, you know, when this information was going to get online. Obviously, a lot of people uh, rely on the Wazi report and rely on the USDA more generally for that accurate ag information. 
uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a black eye in the department on uh, on Friday. But I mean, it doesn't sound like it's uh, it's an unfixable issue. So I guess we'll we'll be a lot smarter about that in a, in a month or so. We'll we'll know if they've got the issue fixed. Wasn't a good look. The optics weren't good no. for USDA. No, certainly not, and especially when you've got the added consideration of ERS and NISA just moving to Kansas City. Uh, you know, a lot of people are going to, in reality, that probably didn't play much of a role in the delay, but that's just an added, uh, added level of concern for the reliability of the of USDA information and, and thereof. So a lot of folks looking to make sure that that, uh, that issue is going to get fixed here by the time the next report rolls out. All right, Spencer, good to talk with you. See you in Kansas City. Looking forward to it, Mike. All right, Spencer Chase with AgriPulse Communications. Up next, winter weather moving across the country. We'll talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. That's coming up next. Stay with us here on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, it certainly has the look and feel of winter over much of the country. Let's talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, somebody left the the freezer door open. For sure, Mike. Uh, We have Arctic cold across uh, just about all the uh, central and eastern U.S. this week. It's not out of uh, out of the ordinary. It's not completely unheard of for November to get this. Uh, just a few years ago, uh, it was close to this cold in uh, parts of the uh, western Midwest anyway. I, I remember being at a meeting uh, out in central Nebraska back in uh, 2015 and um, you know it was a it was a bundle up and uh, you know keep the car heater going uh, all the way uh, to high. For the entire length of that uh, of that trip, and that that was an all day uh, trip out and back into central Nebraska from Omaha, so it can happen. Uh, the fact that it's going on, considering that uh, it's such a delayed harvest, is of course uh, you know real problematic, uh, especially for corn right now. And not only is it uh, cold with uh, temperatures that are 15 to 25 or even uh, more below normal. But uh, we're also getting this round of snow and some mixed precipitation that uh, are complicating things even more, either uh, trying to uh, get harvest done in the field or move grain out of the field or move the grain into storage or move the grain to the grain dryer. And then, of course, in some areas, trying to get fuel to run the dryers is also an added uh, challenge. Uh, We knew that going in, but the reality is still awfully difficult and uh you know it, it just keeps things uh, very stressful uh for this particular season and it seems like these changes are 
dramatic, significant, and quick. I mean, yesterday here around me, I'm in west central Illinois, farmers were wrapping up harvest, a lot of fall field work was going on, and hydras being put on. I was mowing my yard, and then now it's snowing today. Well, it uh, you know that that's the uh, pattern that uh, that happened uh, during the past weekend uh, from west to east because uh, on Saturday it was a, a very mild day out here in Omaha and I know that there was a lot of work that got done and uh, it pretty much continued through uh, a fair amount of the day on Sunday and then let's see the cold front it seemed to me actually came into Omaha right around noon uh, Central Time sharp on uh, Sunday because I was uh, outside doing some uh, doing some ac- uh, activity trying to clean up uh, the yard and so forth and uh, the wind changed direction mighty quickly right around noon and then you know we got to where overnight uh, there was an inch or two of snow here uh, just like you've had uh, quite a bit of the central part of the country is now having some sort of a winter advisory in effect, and it certainly has changed the character of things and, and obviously uh, brought uh, some new hurdles to uh, harvest and uh, quite possibly has uh, ended the field work efforts. We'll see how that plays out, but it uh, d- definitely has caused a new round of problems. Yeah, what do you see for this week and into next week? It's going to be a, a little bit more of a of a uh, back and forth type scenario because this week, uh, like I say, over the next couple three days is going to be mighty cold, and then uh, by the end of the week, we're going to see a milder trend and a drier pattern. Next week then is going to be more seasonal on the precip- or on the temperature side. But uh, the upper air features are going to bring more troughing into the southwest. And when we see troughing over, you know, the states of Arizona and New Mexico and to Southern California, I always think about the circulation around that uh, large-scale upper air feature. And uh, we know that that is uh, counterclockwise here in the northern hemisphere. So on the front side of that trough, the Gulf of Mexico is going to be offering moisture into the interior of the country. And so during Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week, uh, we're going to see at least some light rain and maybe even some light snow as well. Uh, so that's going to uh, possibly cause a new round of, of uh, concern for uh, delaying harvest and uh, causing some, uh, you know, some difficulty with transportation and, again, with field work uh, possibilities. Uh, I don't think that we're going to be seeing those uh, concerns quite as much for soybeans now because soybeans are well into the final stages of harvest. But uh, corn harvest, uh, they're still probably, what, about um, 25% or so to uh, take care of, and a lot of that crop is the latest planted, uh, which means that we're looking at highest moisture and uh, all of those uh, impediments, all of those uh, issues uh, to get through in order to get that crop in shape for storage uh, through the balance of the winter. Bryce, let's kind of talk about these wet areas that have stayed wet, uh, flooded areas and flood-threatened areas still. I mean, even normal precipitation now poses a, a real threat, doesn't it? Well, it does. Uh, the, the, uh, the prospects for flooding uh, for next uh, year in 2020 are quite high in the northern plains, uh, the northern and the western Midwest, and uh, even into the mid-Mississippi Valley as well. And as we go through the winter, that's just uh, going to be um, 
you know, tracked very closely. It's hard to uh, think of a um, situation right now that's going to offer a, a lot of real improvement on that, um, you know, on, on that uh, chance uh, during the next uh, several months because uh, we go into wintertime. Uh, we know that with the colder air, there's not going to be as much evaporation. And so the, the uh, circumstances that we have for the uh, full soil moisture profiles are going to be with us through the winter, and then that leads us into a very concerning uh, scenario for spring. And it's hard to think of a uh, precip situation for springtime that is any different than at least uh, normal at this point. And with that being the case, then uh, that flood chance is going to be high, and along with that, saturated ground leading to the uh, potential for uh, fieldwork disruptions once again for the year 2020. Yeah, we assume that those acres that didn't get planted this year will next year, but I don't know. You hear that scenario, it makes you wonder. Some of those may be threatened again next year. So much of what we see in the year 2020 is going to be, I think, dependent on spring precipitation. And I, I'm not offering any any profound uh you know, completely unthought of uh, of comment with that. But uh, one of the factors for uh, flooding is already in place, and that is the high soil moisture levels. Uh, so that's already there as far as um, a potential contributor toward uh, flood for toward uh, flooding in uh, the year 2020 during the uh, springtime of next year. And then uh, there's winter precipitation that at this point appears to be a, uh, a pattern that's going to be offering at least normal precip, especially in the mid to late portions of the winter. Then you look at springtime, Mike, and last spring uh, there was above to much above normal precipitation. In fact, uh, quite a few states either were close to a record or set a record for spring precip and those are the months of march april and may and if uh... you know if things uh, play out again like they did this past spring with that sort of uh, situation yeah we will find ourselves uh, right back in it as far as the high water is concerned the um, the the prospect of a record amount of uh, rainfall is one that is very uh... tenuous to forecast at this point but I think that at least normal precipitation is uh, certainly um, a, a, uh, a feature, a detail that you're likely to see for next year. And so, yes, I do think that flooding is going to be around. Uh, the, you know, whether it's uh, as bad as it was this past year with the uh, number of acres that were affected, uh, that's uh, maybe a little bit in question. But I think that we will still see, see uh, at least uh, some. Uh, prevented planting again this next year. I don't think that that's um, an out of the uh, an out of the realm uh, type of prospect. We let you go, but I want to mention your DTN summits coming up uh, next month in Chicago. What what are the dates? The dates are uh, December 9th through the 11th, uh, Monday, December 9th through Wednesday, the 11th. We have some optional uh, early activities. They're going to be more uh, focused on, on market uh, education, market practices uh, on Sunday. And, of course, we invite everybody to think about that. But uh, we, we uh, I think, are going to have a very good program again. 
And uh, my weather forecast uh, part of things is going to be on Wednesday morning, December 11th. Hope to see a lot of people there. All right, Bryce, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. Always, Mike. Thank you. Take care. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Up next, we look at uh, Friday's crop report numbers with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. Stay with us on AOA. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain futures traded lower in the overnight session, continuing the downtrend for November. Since the start of the month, corn futures have fallen 4%. Soybean futures, 8 tenths of a percent. Wheat in Chicago falling 4 tenths of a percent. Early on this Monday, an hour into the day, Chicago wheat December down two and a quarter at 508, March down two at 512 and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat December down a penny and a quarter at 517 and a quarter. Kansas City wheat December, that's a penny higher, trading at 422 and a half. In corn, December down two and a quarter at 375, March down two and a half at 384. USDA expects the nation's corn farmers to harvest 13.67 billion bushels of corn this year, according to Friday's WASD report, pulling in a national average yield of 167 bushels per acre. In soybeans, January down eight and a quarter, 9.22 and three quarters of a cent. Soybean meal trending over $2 lower per ton, 8 to 11 points higher in soybean oil. Livestock and American live cattle futures were flat to 25 cents lower. December down 25 at $119 per hundred weight. Feeder cattle January up 22 at 146.10. Cash cattle activity seen on a higher level in both a live basis in the south, dressed in the north. Bids and asking prices not well developed so far on this early trading week. Lean hog futures February down 52, 73.37. The Dow is down 98, S&P down 9, crude oil steady. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credenced soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, Friday was an interesting day. A lot of people waiting on USDA numbers, and there was a delay getting those numbers. Let's talk about it with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories and uh, concerns, complaints, and questions. Uh, it was interesting. Yes, good morning, Mike. Um, yes, it was. I think we on this Veterans Day we should at least uh, give a shout-out and a salute to our veterans. Um, but, yes, um, Friday was kind of interesting. You know, we all sat there and kind of waited and waited, and we got the crop production numbers, and we're thinking, well, where's the other half of this? And 
didn't get it, and there was confusion at USDA that there was some maintenance being done. And you'd, you'd have to think that their left hand would know what the right hand's doing there, but uh, we finally got them out, so that was good, and we saw quite a few numbers. But it's interesting, when you start to sift through the numbers and look through them all and look at yields and production, you th- you're kind of left scratching your head, and particularly on corn, and you're thinking, okay, we're ba- back to that 166 we you know, that USDA plugged in their numbers in July, and you're kind of thought, you know, thinking that's kind of interesting. And, you, and it's interesting, too, you start looking at their their ejected yield day and look at, you know, ear weight and ear count, and, you know, they hasn't it hasn't changed all that much from, from August. It's been very, very small. And the, and the same with beans, when you start looking at pod counts and weight, it hasn't changed much from the August number, which is quite different than we've seen in, in previous years and where you've seen some pretty wide swings and therefore some pretty wide swings in yield. And, and you would think of all years, this would be the one where mm-hmm. you would see it just because there's been so much uncertainty about this yield. So I, at that session, I think something still to watch. And as we've said all year long, you know, we may not really know what this crop is until we get to January. And in soybeans, we may not know until we get to, you know, the September grain stocks number next, you know, a year, almost a year from now. Yeah, I think um, there's been an expectation, ahead. right, uh, that we would yeah. see a big adjustment somewhere along the line, and I think most expected that adjustment to be down. But there, as you said, yeah. it really hasn't been that that big uh, that big move yet. And you wonder is it just going to keep no. happening gradually, or is it, or, or as you said, we're just going to get strung out here until probably January. Yeah, and that's the thing that's really you know it's you know it's, it's not troubling, but it's very interesting when. You see all the uncertainty we had this year, and 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 we'll pick on corn because corn's easy to pick on. But the fact is, you've had, you know, you know, such a horrible spring, and you know, corn didn't emerge well, and didn't get planted well, and it got mudded in, and you know, and the and the growing season ended up, you know, when we got in the middle of it, wasn't too bad, a little dry in your neck of the woods, uh, and then you come to harvest, and you've had all kinds of bad weather in harvest, and and you're just and I, particularly in those in the Northwest Corn Belt, it's just been exhausting, and it's just one thing after another, and you just kind of scratch your head and think, "Wow!" And I and I've said this before, and I hate, and it's one of those things you comment starting to believe is that you know, corn crops almost bulletproof to any sort of bad weather or less than ideal weather or you know anything, and that's just amazing when you look at that um, going forward. Is that we'll, it just seems like we, you hate to say this, but like we can't do anything wrong we just we're going to produce a corn crop no matter what okay so what does this tell the markets what's the market signal now for the next uh, few weeks yeah and i I think that's a a good question i think we have to look both at the supply side which we talked about and and i think it it keeps the supply side maybe a, a little uncertain you know i think in the corn production industry expectations were kind of met you know beans in the hand were a little different story and I think there may be a few more fireworks and beans where it's all said and done uh, because the market was looking for a little lower bean production. So I think that's something to be watching going forward. But the other side of this is demand side, and, and that's a little more concerning. Actually, it's a lot more concerning. When we finished our 10-year baseline just here recently, one of the, one of the things that came out of it, particularly for corn and wheat, was, was the lack of demand or any growth in demand. And when you look at what USDA did to the supply and demand for ni- for 1920, you saw that they lowered all the demand components, you know, feed and residual, you know, ethanol, um, all exports, you know, everything got lowered. And that just makes you a very concerned about where is that future demand coming for corn? 
Now, I will tell you, I think when we look at the corn side on feed, I think they probably took it a little bit too low. Now, maybe last year was a little bit too high, um, but, you know, the fact is we do have good livestock numbers out there. The demand, the demand side for, li- you know, for animal protein is tremendous. The export side is tremendous. So I think that feed number probably may come up, and I think that will be, you know, helpful to the market going forward. I was, again, on the same note with soybeans. I think it's a little surprising when we see, um, you know, they, they get adjusted, you know, crushing down. And, I, and, they, and they, didn't, they left exports the same. It's like, okay, I, I'll, I'm okay with that. But adjusting crushings down to me seemed a little bit odd considering how solid uh, crushing margins are. And, again, back to the feed side. You know, we get a lot of pigs and chickens um, to feed, and they need meal. And, and the fact is the other thing, too, is when you have – Crushing margins continue to be very good, and oil prices going up, which is going to support crushing margins. You would think that those crushers are going to be crushing beans until the cows come home because their margins are good, and that should be good for soybean demand longer term. So, you know, I think that's the one on beans. I would be I would be watching crushing demand, and I'd be watching feed demand on corn. Both of those to me seem a little low um, after Friday's report. Yeah, you know, we often talk with uh, uh, folks at. National Corn Growers, American Soybean Association, sure. and they often say, "Hey, the this is why the livestock industry is so important to us. This is our this is our market here to move uh, our product through them." And when we look at next year, we don't know about you know what the trade's going to be or whatever grain sales, but we it sure looks like. And you've referenced this huge protein demand. Uh, one of our biggest markets may be, really be next year for corn and beans, as you said. Feeding the what looks to be maybe uh, an increasing livestock sector. I mean, the, the signals seem to be there to to really expand. Absolutely, and I and I think you hit it right on the head in the first part of your question. Is that you know think about and you and I are old enough to remember growing up with everyone had you know pigs and cows and chickens and corn and soybeans and even some wheat on the farm, and then we went into this very specialized mode over the last. Uh, I mean, you could say over the last thirty years. And I think we're maybe coming back to where we grew up, where instead of hauling that grain off the farm, we're gonna, we're, it's going to walk off the farm. And, that's, and we've reminded producers, your best market may be that local livestock producer uh, because he, needs, he or she is going to need you know, grain and meal every single day because you just can't turn the switch off on, a, on an animal that's eating. So I, that is probably going to be our best market, and, and we need to be recognizing that, and the associations are absolutely right. That is where our market's going and what we need to be attentive to going forward. Talking with Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo AgriFinance. Steve, what's going on out in the countryside? We talk about basis, but you know, this push and pull as far as farmers storing grain and holding on to it and uh, yep. when someone actually needs it and trying to bid up to get it. What, what's happening out there? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You've got farmers, obviously they're in the middle of harvest, and, and they're preoccupied with that, and they should be. I mean, that's the most important thing right now. But because you're getting this elongated harvest and farmers are, you know, not marketing grain or not hauling it to town or hauling it to the river ports, you know, the basis is, have to, the basis is doing the work to try to, you know, get it out of their hands and get it into the marketplace. So I think basis levels are continuing to be very, very, very good. I, one of the things I noticed this week, I was doing some work for a, a trip this week, and, it, you know, Portland SIF corn basis is just skyrocketing. Um, and you have to, and I haven't quite got deep enough into it yet, but it, it appears that, 
you know, they're they're feeling the same effect as the interior bases always continue to go up to try to get it, you know, keep it in the interior, whether you're a livestock person or elevator. And the export markets, while they're not strong, are having a hard time getting it. So, you know, that's, and we've seen, you know, even soybean, you know, soybean bases the Gulf come back a little bit. Um, and so that's going to continue to be where farmers are going to make their money. The futures market isn't going to be, it's the basis. And, I, and we continue to see appreciation of bases in the country. Um, and that would argue to producers they ought to hang on waiting for that basis to come. But I would argue, but I would also, you know, kind of deposit with people, if you see produce, if you see end users, whether it's an elevator or a livestock person or a processor, bidding up on that born basis, that's where your opportunity is to, is to jump. Mm-hmm. All right, Steve, safe travels to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you much, Mike. Thank you. Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. So how much E15 are we moving in the country? We'll talk about it next with Robert White with the Renewable Fuels Association on AOA. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And on this Veterans Day, again, our salute, our thanks, our tribute to all those who have and continue to serve our country. We have a veteran with us now. Robert White is the Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, thanks for being with us. A lot of wonderful Veterans Day ceremonies and observances going on around the country. I know you've been uh, involved in some of those. Yeah, just leaving a breakfast hosted by our local congresswoman, Sharice Davids, where we awarded a young gentleman his Purple Heart that he has long since left the service, but was an oversight that her office and the Wounded Warrior uh, Foundation were able to bring to light and uh, bring to fruition. So that was a very rewarding experience to be part of this morning and and uh, special thanks to all the other veterans out there i wanted to uh, get your thoughts on where we are i know you're very closely uh, involved in this uh, and and watch closely you work with retailers this was a year of course with all the ups and downs for biofuels one of the ups was getting uh, finally approval year-round for e15 but we still have a couple of states not selling it isn't that right well, we've got an actual a, a few states, but a couple of really big ones. I mean, California, obviously the number one gasoline market in the country, uh, followed by uh, Texas, Florida, and then New York. And New York is the other one that's uh, one that we're getting close to the finish line. Uh, hopefully it'll be a nice Thanksgiving miracle of sorts and uh, open up the fourth largest gasoline market to 15% ethanol. Overall this year, have we seen a, an increase in the, the volume of E15 gallons sold? We have, Mike, but it's really, uh, for the most part, been the stations that were already existing and had that uh, 
nice win there at the beginning of summer where the EPA allowed for year-round uh, sales of E15, which allowed them to continue through those summer months and the largest you know, driving season of the, of the year. So no doubt there will be a lot more sold. Uh, unfortunately, the uptick in station openings hasn't uh, really ramped up quite as much as most of us would hope, but all you got to do is look to Washington and the uncertainty that we see on a daily basis, the small refinery exemptions getting the RIN value, and the RINs were really a, a way for retailers to lower the price of the pump, pay for their equipment, uh, while the petroleum industry was avoiding their compliance. And it was sort of a reward mechanism for those that did, and unfortunately the, the RINs really don't have much of a value today. So when you're talking with retailers, they may be thinking about adding an E15 pump. Uh, what are their biggest concerns? What are the issues, the obstacles to overcome here? Well, really, it's cost. I mean, it, we're looking at an industry where you know, roughly 125,000 gas stations out there and the average net profit uh, industry-wide is only $37,000. And you think of some of the big boys out there that you know are making a lot of money someone setting that average on the, on the other end. And so the access to capital is, is terrible, um, and they have to look at other ways. So whether it's USDA programs that, you know, like the Biofuels Infrastructure Partnership Program that injects some, some money into the program or industry money or state initiatives, all those help really catapult this conversation. Otherwise, we're looking at groups that are adding E15 as renovations come online, or greenfield sites where they're building brand new gas stations. That's where we're we're seeing the expansion now. It's just uh, you know every station is different. Some stations have required as as little as an hour of tech service and some new labels, but others have have needed more equipment. It really is a case by case situation. Have you been able to even in a small way get into some areas, some markets that you hadn't been able to before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at uh, Texas is a good example where we now have uh, 87 octane E15 thanks to some unique opportunities down there. Uh, something now that we have, you know, E15 at three different octane grades. I'm working on some initiatives to bring E15 into the premium side of things. Uh, higher boost of octane at a premium gallon, but also a lower cost at the same time. So there's a lot of opportunities. You know, New York will be one of those. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of E15 outside the Midwest, which is kind of the reverse of how E10 flowed. Um, so that is exciting in itself, and I think it'll continue to grow um, naturally. It's just not going to be – it's simply not a light switch, and we've talked about that before. You can't, can't throw that switch and, and expect everyone to start embracing E15 overnight. It's going to take time to build out that infrastructure and that support. What about E85 sales? Uh, definitely up again, Mike. There's uh, been a decent uptick in E85 stations, uh, averaging pro probably somewhere around one a day uh, of a new location, and they're in the same fashion. They're going into places that haven't seen the fuel before, so it's not a 25- or 30-year-old fuel for them. It's a brand-new fuel. Finding those flex-fuel vehicles for the first time, now our big challenge with E85 is getting more flex-fuel vehicles built, but that's something for another day probably. Well, I was going to say, unfortunately, that that's kind of slowed, hasn't it? Uh, we we thought we were kind of in an upward trajectory there on on getting those flex fuel vehicles on the road. Really, it was an administration decision to 
kind of redirect the CAFE, the corporate average fuel economy credits that we're incentivizing flex fuel vehicle production down to electric vehicles. Uh, we have been working diligently with the Trump administration, just one of those many things on our list, uh, to correct that, that factor that dictates the credit that would be allowed to uh, the automakers for those flex fuel vehicle productions. There has been a little progress on that, but they have made it very clear that without some sort of mechanism there from the federal government that it's going to be hard to find flex fuel vehicles. All right. Uh, good to talk with you, Robert, and appreciate, again, thank you to you and all veterans for your service. I uh, hope to see you this week in Kansas City. Sounds good, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you, veterans, for your service, your commitment, your sacrifice for all of us. We thank you so very, very much. Thanks for joining us today on AOA. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone.